Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm your host, Jim McNamara. Our guest today is Lieutenant David Pauling. Lieutenant Pauling started with the Barrington, New Jersey Police Department in 2011. He previously served as a patrol officer, patrol sergeant, detective sergeant, before being promoted to lieutenant in 2022. Lieutenant Pauling serves as the emergency management coordinator in Barrington and has been a member of the Zone 5 SWAT team since 2015. He is a lifelong resident of the town where he is policing and is proud to serve his community. Welcome, David, to the LUF Humanizing the Narrative podcast. We are beyond excited to have you on the show. The LUF team has worked tirelessly to better understand the impacts of operational stress on those who work in high-risk, lethal environments where the consequences of failure can be catastrophic. It is our collective belief that the pressures placed upon the men and women in law enforcement put them in a category above all others. Welcome, David. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. David, I mentioned in the intro you're a lifelong resident of your hometown. What can you tell us about your early life? So, yeah, I grew up in Barrington, New Jersey, which is a small town, more specifically in Camden County. It's about a a 10-minute drive to Camden, 15-minute drive to Philadelphia. There's about 7,000 residents. Uh, it's it's a great place to grow up, is that small-town feel. Uh, my parents actually both grew up in Barrington, too. So anytime I talk to somebody on the job, they're like, oh, is your so-and-so your parent? It's always a, a positive connection. My dad worked for the Postal Service for over 30 years. My mom was a teacher for over 30 years. Um, my dad was also the president of the fire company. So I'm also from a volunteer fire department family, which is funny being on this podcast as a cop. <laughs> my mom was on the school board. She actually got to be the president of the New Jersey State School Board Association. So I come from leaders and public servants, and that was kind of my calling. Excellent. At what point in life did you decide that a career in law enforcement was the right job for you? I knew I wanted to do something in public service. And like I said, growing up in a volunteer fire department family, my grandfather was a volunteer fireman, my my dad, my two brothers, and me. That was always plan 1A, and being a, a cop was plan 1B. So once I graduated high school and started college, I started taking the tests for law enforcement and fire. And in Camden County, really the only full-time 24-7 departments at the time were, were Camden, and Camden had a residency requirement. So I, di- I didn't really have the means or, or want to live in Camden. So then Cherry Hill was the next option. And uh, when Timmy and Zach were here, they kind of mentioned it, that it was, at the time, it was very difficult to get hired there. They had seven, 800 people applying for two or three jobs. So I did that. Didn't go the way that I had hoped. Um, and at the time, I was still taking police tests. So I took the civil service test, and then I 
went through the alternate route program, which the alternate route program allows people to interview, do a physical test, get interviewed by academy staff, and then you pay for yourself to go through the academy. So I did that. And when the fire department thing didn't work out, it was plan 1B. So I got into the alternate route program, and, and soon after graduating there, I got hired in Barrington. And what were some of the challenges you faced in the early part of your career? It, it's a lot different going from volunteer fire department to the academy and then to being on the street. I like to equate it to when you hear football players talk about the speed from college to the NFL, how different it is. The academy does their best to train us for what to expect on the street, but it's vastly different. Things are faster. You're you're driving fast. You're getting into pursuits. You're making quick decisions. And I was 24 when I started. So here I am going to domestic calls with married adults with kids, maybe as old as I am, that they're arguing. And I'm trying to figure out what it is that's going on and try to explain to them what their rights are, how they can be better husbands, wives, parents. And here I am a 24-year single, not married, no kids. And it was uh, it was difficult for me to kind of bridge that gap with people because I was so young. I grew up in Barrington. And to to have to kind of police the people that I grew up with was also definitely a challenge. I remember soon after I started, I got into a foot pursuit with a guy, a drug dealer, got his drugs, didn't catch him right away, ID'd him, called him soon after the next couple hours. And then I see him in the supermarket that I go to. He's working. So that was a challenge that I really had to overcome was growing up in the town that I police, being a new officer, trying to learn the job and how I can interact with people outside of the job that I might deal with inside of the job. And all these responsibilities, you're, it's just screaming about uncertainty, at this, the pace and, and engaging a task for which you can never possibly uh, prepare during a, an academy. Right. Yeah. We, we only have a, a finite amount of time in the academy. And with everything in public service in the world now, it's evolving. So they're going off of this curriculum that may have been in place for 30, 50 years, who knows. And we're now tasked with learning these new things that we have to police. And the academy does their best and, and the in-service training that we have for the department does its best. But it's you're really learning on the fly as you go. And the, the experience you, that you can garner from your jobs, from some more senior officers, from your friends that work in other departments that you can have a chat at coffee with, it's uh, it's imperative that you build those relationships so you can learn. And how long was the academy? Mine was uh, four and a half months. I think it was 26 weeks. And that was uh, Monday through Friday. We got there probably at like 5.30 and we're gone by four o'clock. What prompted your move to the SWAT team? So I joined the SWAT team in January of 2015 after being hired in April of 2011. So it was just under four years in that I got on the SWAT team. They were always the people that I mean, you see it on TV. It looks very cool. You see it in the movies. It looks cool. But for me, getting more time on my first couple of years, they're the people that cops are going to to solve problems for them. It's kind of a saying that we have. It People say it in a joking way. 
when a cop needs a cop, they call the SWAT team. It's kind of true. I mean, I would be out on scenes and I would see these people that are on the SWAT team and those are who people are going to to help them manage this critical incident. And a lot of them were supervisors and leaders in their agencies. And it was the training. They train twice a month, which is a lot more than any other patrol officer. And their training is forward thinking. They're using simunitions. They're going to military bases to use high-risk entry buildings. They're going to live fire shoot houses. The training that they get is far better than any training that I was able to get through my department individually. To better myself as a police officer, it was an avenue that I could go to do that. Obviously, it was cool. It's it's enjoyable. And the, the teams are like a firehouse. They're together a lot. They chat. They have lunch together. They have dinner together. They train together and they go to these critical incidents together. And it's just a great way to connect. And what are some of the challenges and pressures you face as a SWAT officer? I think the first one for me would be being in a small department. The SWAT team is extra. So I need to make time in my schedule to not only be a police officer in Barrington, but also be a SWAT team member. So we have a lot of officers. And when I first got on, I was in patrol. We have training on Wednesdays, so I might work night shift on Tuesday night and then have to go into training the next day. So I get a couple hours, I wake up, I go to training, a couple hours of sleep, wake up, go to training. And then we have jobs that some of the call-outs or barricades are all times in the night. We're basically on call 24-7, 365. And then they're planned like a high-risk entry warrant. We may be briefing at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning to do a 6 o'clock hit. So we're trying to juggle our schedule and our family life be available to the SWAT team. And it, that that was definitely the first challenge that I experienced when I first got on the SWAT team. The next one, I think, more recent, actually within the past couple of years, was the first job that I went to after having my first daughter was an emotional experience for me. I don't know how to explain it other than that all I was thinking about was I have to go home from this job today. And on the truck, usually I'm one of the people breaking balls and and joking and, and talking. I was completely silent for the entire ride to the job, ride from my car to home. And it was just like I was in my own head emotionally thinking about my daughter at home and my wife. It was something that I wasn't prepared for. I got on the truck and it kind of like hit me like a ton of bricks where – I was just like, probably wasn't in the right state of mind to to be on that job. Luckily, we we had a positive outcome, but it's definitely something that I didn't prepare for that, I mean, I do my best for now, people that are having kids, just warn them, give them my experiences and see if they ever, their first job back after having a kid, if they experience the same thing. Sure. In the fire portion of the house, um, any calls involving kids are always the hardest. Yeah, definitely. I uh, remember personally for myself, we've had instances where child services has to take a kid from a house. I've had an accident where a drug addict parent drove their young kids without securing them in a car seat. They get into an accident. Kids are ejected out of the car. People from my department have to do CPR on an infant that their parent passed out from being drunk and 
laid on top of the child. So, yeah, kids, especially after having kids, it's far worse. But kids' incidents are always the most difficult. And can you walk us through the pressure of you're moving to a barricaded situation? There's tremendous uncertainty. You don't know what's inside that house. You don't know how it's fortified. What is it like as you're, you know, stepping off that truck and moving towards the objective? It's uh, it's something you definitely have to get the experience to really learn how to manage that. Like you said, the the uncertainty is always there. We do our best to get as much intel from detectives that we can, but there's times that they're completely wrong. We had a a job in Camden one time where the detectives told us that they thought our target was in the house that we were hitting we get out of the truck walk up it's a plywood door with a master lock on the outside locked so there's nobody in the house so you just have to remember that the intel you have is most likely just information that you need to keep in the back of your mind so you you need to control your breathing you need to visualize you should have already visualized what you're going to do and have contingency plans in your brain. The first few, it's kind of like, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. It's it's like being in a whirlwind where you're you're walking up and everything's just happening around you and you're hoping that your training has brought you to, to have the the right process to, to get through that building safely and, and protect yourself and, and the others. And uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned that I'm wearing my whoop that I actually got after I went through the leadership under fire class because I I wanted to see what my heart rate was doing on these jobs. And soon after I got it, we had a call for a homicide warrant in Camden. So we're going out there and my heart rate is right around 90 as we're making the approach. And as soon as we step out of our truck, two people come out of the apartment that we're going to hit. So we call them out. We take them into custody. We go and clear the building. The building's empty. After I look at my heart rate, my heart rate went from 90 to like 140. And then four minutes later, it was back down to 90 because we were through the building so fast and things were kind of calming down. And I think I sent you or or Jason that that data because it was very soon after I had gotten it. And it was just exciting to see what it does to me. And I had been on the team for eight years by this time. I, I'm experienced going to these high-risk entry incidents and just to see what my body is doing going to the this homicide warrant, is, it's nice to kind of have the science behind that. Sure. And from our side of the house, what we see often, the highest spikes on the heart rate are from the receipt of the ticket until, again, you're knocking at the door with a weapon, we're knocking at the door with a with a hose and axe. Yeah. But you because you don't know, right? And we learn this from from our academic professionals. Uncertainty is an extraordinary driver of this emotional stress, operational stress. And in our professions, unlike those in say, you know, the tier one community that have all these assets, they work to drive uncertainty down to, to nothing. In both of our communities, we get the information we get, yeah. and oftentimes it's not correct. And amazingly, like both communities have to figure it out on the fly 
and then readjust the planning, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. We've definitely learned that the intel we get is not really intel, it's information. And you have to have contingency plans for every incident you're going on. You need multiple contingency plans because the intel is wrong. You may go into a building that they said there's one or two people in there and there's eight in the living room, which might take our entire team just to handcuff them. And now we have the remainder of the building to go through. It's incredible. And it's a profession. I didn't know much about what you did. Um, I'm glad that you can share this with us because so few of us in the first responder community really understand what it is you do. Yeah, it's... uh... I think a lot of cops don't understand what happens all the time, and and each department is different. Cops that are out there right now in New York City doing the job, they're doing things that I probably will never do in my small town. Barrington is 1.6 square miles. We have a state highway that runs through it that runs from Camden to other parts of the county that are really drug infiltrated. So we get a lot of drug stuff on that road. We have apartment complexes. Most of it is is single-family homes. We're a small town. We have 7,000 residents, and I think we do around 11,000 calls a year. Switching gears, um, do you intend to promote further up the ranks? Definitely. Yeah, I, a chief has always been the goal. It's It's definitely been a goal to be chief of police of the town I grew up in, and I say that I don't want my chief now to ever – or I shouldn't say ever leave, leave anytime soon. Him and I have a great relationship now. We respect each other enough to where we can have discussions and we may not always agree with the decision that's made. Ultimately, it's his decision, but I think he respects me enough to where I can come to him and kind of explain the why. And he may change his tone and and kind of agree with me. And I'm in charge of our training and he's really let me run wild with it. After the leadership under fire, I saw how important breathing was. So we just had a breathing instructor come to our in-service training. Uh, I also had a financial advisor come to one of our in-service trainings because my idea behind that was if people are bringing baggage, i.e. bills and, and other financial stress to work, they're already rolling down the hill building that snowball and, and where they might cause some harm on people. And a lot of our young officers are, are out there, I'm going to buy Bitcoin right now or I'm going to buy <laughs> whatever. And they have $5,000 in credit card debt. So whatever money that is that they get from this Bitcoin going up a half a percentage, they're losing an interest to uh, the credit card. So uh, going back to the chief, he allows me to really do whatever I want with, with the training. We created the extra in-service days so we can – not only fulfill the requirements by the attorney general, but to go above them. Instead of cutting our range days in half, we implemented having full range days to where we can do what's mandatory and then do more. And then we created in-service days where we have these PowerPoints that are mandatory. And then we can bring in the breathing coach and the financial advisor, and we can do tabletop stuff. We can do tourniquets in low light. All these things that if, if he wasn't in the position he's in, I don't think that we'd be doing these things. And the things he is great at, or some of the things he's great at are, are things that I'm not great at, and it goes vice versa. So I 
to go back to your question, I definitely do want to be chief at some point. It, it's definitely a goal, but I'm happy where I am now, and I'm I'm lucky to have the chief that I have now. Excellent. It's fantastic to work with a leader who allows you to take initiative. Yeah, it's when I first started, I had a notebook in my locker, and it was titled "Shit I Will Change When I Can't," and I had a list of stuff. And finally, I'm in a position where there is things that I can change. And there's some stuff that was on that list that I can't change just because of budgets or or the rules that I wasn't aware of at the time that I wrote it. But like you said, it's nice to have somebody that I have one person to go to if I need to go to. And he trusts me enough to where I don't even need to go to him for a lot of things. And that's a reflection of a great organization. Yep. Terrific. I want to switch gears again, talk about technology which is a broad topic for the first responder community. We can break this down into two primary categories, tech that helps us and tech that impacts us. Let's start with the impactful. How has tech in terms of gear package and communications capability negatively impacted law enforcement? I think to start off with our gear, a lot of departments, including mine, have gone to the the outside carriers with the Molly vest. So all of our stuff is off of our waist onto our chest and stomach. And that was beneficial for me in that it got everything off my back. I know a lot of people that have back and and hip issues. As far as negatively impacting us, people think that we are more militarized. So we show up with this stuff, which is really more about health and wellness for us, getting it off of our hips onto our chest. And they think we're, we're the military showing up to their house for a a CO detector alarm or a medical call where they have to go to the hospital. And people just really don't like the look of that. It's kind of like going back to tattoos and and nowadays beards where people really, they want the old school thought and this new technology for the the Molly carriers and and the lightweight stuff is just new to them and they don't like it. And uh, to touch on technology... When I was growing up, I barely knew any kids my age outside of my town, whether it be from school or sports, was really the only way that I knew kids. But with technology now and social media, these kids are reaching people across the world, and it's it's really a burden on us. We, we had an incident where a kid was missing, and we're talking to the family, like, do they have a boyfriend, girlfriend, anything like that? They're like, oh, they have a boyfriend. Uh, he's a gang member in Miami. They had never been to Miami. So they met online. They've communicated on social media and their boyfriend and girlfriend. And, and they may not be the best people to help us find this person. And along the lines of that, we, we've seen a lot of technology luring kids and to do bad things, whether it be run away, get on a train to go to another state or to send sexually explicit images. And they don't actually know who they're sending them to because it's so easy for the bad people to to groom them into doing these things. So technology has been good and bad for us, but those, those are definitely some of the bads. It's refreshing to hear that you've changed the way your gear is, is positioned, that you're going to lighter gear. Uh, in the fire department, fire service rather, uh, just the opposite. 
you know, we wear gear today that is heavier, more restrictive, and more debilitating because we didn't know. We didn't understand human performance. Uh, it's refreshing. W what was the genesis for making that decision? What was what was that? I think it was was people would go to their doctors and that are having back problems, and and manufacturers were making these things. So that then they kind of pushed for it, and it's difficult for the administration to fight back if it's a doctor telling them that they have to do it and it's definitely been beneficial we had a we have a department close to us that three or four of their officers have had hip surgery before they're 50 so it's definitely necessary and i think it was it was really doctors pushing the administrations to to move to these things because i was going to a chiropractor as a 20 something year old i haven't been to the chiropractor in five or six years because all my stuff is up here and being a smaller wasted person I don't have anything on my back crushing into the seat for 12 hours I don't have anything on my hips my gun is actually down on my leg so it's it's definitely helped backs and hips and necks and that kind of thing to, to move all the gear up that's fantastic hopefully the fire service can take a, a lesson from you guys yeah they need a lot of lessons from us <laughs> On the other side, the flip side, the impact that the camera phone has had on law enforcement. In New York, we would describe it as the citizen effect, which is that app. Has that impacted you guys down there? Yeah, I think initially it, it definitely had a, an impact on us where it would stress people out when a cell phone's in your face and second-guessing themselves. And it, it kind of evolved from there to the First Amendment auditors, which is all over YouTube. And they go into these locations, and they're content creators. They claim to be independent journalists, but they want people to react poorly to them. And I think that kind of the cell phone or the citizen effect evolved into people that do that professionally. And they just want the bad outcome from that. But I think we've gotten better... In New Jersey, every cop is required to wear a body cam, and we actually got body cameras before that was required. We would have people call in and complain about officers not knowing that we had body cameras, and they would just make stuff up. So it was beneficial in that we were recording things too to protect our officers from frivolous complaints, um, but it, it definitely was a stressor in the beginning for people that didn't experience having a cell phone pushed into their face. And a lot of times it was uh, experienced officers with a lot of time on that this new technology was slow to get to them. They're the ones I've been doing this for however long. You shove a camera in their face and all of a sudden it's, it's a problem for them. Interesting. I cannot imagine what it must feel like to be a police officer in New York City or any large city that has these types of services. Everything that they do, every second of the day, people are up in their grill. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's good in that a lot of times we rec record ourselves. But I remember seeing recently there was a streamer that w put something online that he was going to give something away in Times Square, and it became chaos. Yeah. And we haven't experienced riots in Barrington, luckily, knock on wood, but um. Being in New York, I couldn't. I couldn't even imagine me, who's grown up with a cell phone and had them in my face, and it doesn't really bother me. But somebody like 
uh, at my face screaming at me. I don't know how they do it. It definitely takes a lot of courage to be able to stand there and, and take that for however long it is that they have to. Sure. It even impacts our young guys who live in that world. The first thing they do after any type of operation, they go back to the rig and check their phones. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's different. I mean, I, like I said, I grew up with one, but I can see that it's it's really a habit of people to do that and maybe some sort of an addiction for, for a lot of people to where they need that feeling of updating themselves on information. And it's taken away from a lot of personality and, and conversations and that kind of thing. Switching gears again now, recruitment and retention. Why is it becoming so difficult to attract new officers to law enforcement? I think a lot of it, I, uh, and I mentioned before, seeing on the news the, the negative that police officers are doing. There's Every once in a while we'll get a story of a, a good thing that cops do, but it, it's a one-off thing, and it's shown one time and that's it. But these stories of cops doing bad are going viral, and they see the, the riots where cops get screamed in their face. People don't want to do that anymore. And... I think the pay really needs to come up too because especially since COVID, a lot of people are able to work from home. They have a lot better of a kind of like a work home life juggle and to have to go into work on holidays, on birthdays, on weekends, at night, overnight shifts. It's not something that people want to do for the pay that, that is currently at when they can just sit home and work on a computer. And I think it with all the public service, police, fire, EMS, it takes a certain type of person. And I, I don't know that those types of people are as common as they once were. Interesting angle. The NYPD gives a test six days a week. They used to attract untold tens of thousands. They're lucky if they can get half the class that they did years ago. Yeah, I've I've heard not so much from us. We've been very lucky. We're we're getting a lot of homegrown people from not just from Barrington but the surrounding towns that that want to work with us. I've heard some agencies, even bigger agencies in the state that are lowering their standards. And I'm not talking like a gender lowering their standard, but what your background may have shown is getting accepted because they just need people. And that's a terrible trade-off to try and get the people. Yeah. What steps, in, in addition to raising salary, uh, could be taken to improve the recruitment? I think the, we need to advertise it more. We, we definitely need – and we need help from news and, and other organizations that can show the good that police do and the fun that the job is and, and how it makes people feel to go out and do these jobs. The pay seems to be a big thing for the younger people. They they look at a salary on paper, and, and if it's not what they want, then they're going to go do something else. But I think just showing and getting these people involved in, in the good that we do hopefully will attract more people to, to come to our professions. And in conjunction with that, what steps can be taken to retain the experienced officers who have such incredible levels of institutional knowledge? There's definitely some overlap with pay there. I've, I've seen people leaving departments 
because of the pay and the, the contract is not great. But I think the the unique thing about experienced officers, a lot of them leave because of the leadership. I have a friend who I went through the academy with that was a lieutenant in a very small department. And he was on patrol by himself a lot. He was also the administrator, so he was doing everything. And it was just got too much for him where he left and went to take a, a regular patrol officer's salary job in a different department just because he was burdened with so much and the leadership above him was not allowing him to kind of give other stuff away to not be so burdened. And there's other towns that the micromanaging in some of these agencies is just killer for the department. It's not necessarily the pay as much as it is the leadership that they have that is so easy to to jam them up or micromanage everything that they do. And they, they look at every single I that they've dotted and T that they've crossed. And if any of it is wrong, even if we're in a critical incident where your emotions are, are somewhat making the decisions for you, they're going to jam it down your throat and they're going to jam you up. So as soon as they see the writings on the wall there, they're going to leave. So I think to keep experienced officers around, yes, the pay needs to go up. But I think that the leadership and the culture in that agency is a big driving force in, in keeping people around. But what creates that leadership culture? These were at one point men and women who were on the street. How come when they get the bars that all of a sudden it changes? Whew, that's a good question. I I think it's personality where they forget where they came from and they're so scared to be in a deposition for a lawsuit that they're going to hammer people on black and white decisions to where they can't use any discretion. Their emotions are thrown out the window where I don't care that your stress was up and that you were in this critical incident. I need to protect me and the agency and here's your write-up. I wish I could say what it was for each person. I, I'm sure that they don't like talking about it because they're the problem. And I don't know how to fix it aside from from getting these the people that have the right mindset promoted. And a lot of times that's up to the governing body. And my department specifically has been very lucky that we have a great governing body. We have a great relationship. When I got promoted to, to sergeant, I jumped people that had 20 plus years on because they saw that I would better fit in that position for what the goals of the department were. And my chief was the same way. He moved up pretty quickly. And he's he's got a lot of time left to do the job. And we're lucky that we're in the positions we are because we can affect that change that we want for our agency and get the culture to where it is that we want to be. A quote that I actually heard on the podcast when you had the uh, SEAL commander on, and I don't think he just borrowed the quote, but it said, culture eats Strategy uh, for purpose. Yeah, exactly. And that is so true because we can involve our evolve our people to be critical thinkers to where we don't have to micromanage them. We can allow them to do the job that we task them with and trust that they're going to do it to our standards. And I think a lot of managers out there in, in the policing world don't see that and don't push for that. They want their finger on every little thing that happens in their agency, and it, it just ruins the culture. Sure. Sounds like some people need to read about John Boyd. <laughs> yeah.
if they have time. <laughs> we'll switch gears again. David, you had the opportunity to attend the Leadership Under Fire immersive week-long program in partnership with the Cherry Hill Fire Department. After completing the course and having a considerable amount of time to reflect on it, I'm curious to hear your reactions. What was your overall reaction to the course? It was very eye-opening for me. I knew we were involved in stress, but I didn't know what really the effects of it had on my body and my mind and the decisions I make and the everything I do goes back to my mind and to to be able to educate myself and understand what the effects the stress and these emotions going up and going right of the curve have on me just makes me better equipped to manage these critical incidents. We do our best to stress officers in training, whether it be go run, come back and shoot, but we're not doing enough. And I think the Leadership Under Fire class showed me that we need to do emotional things and we need to stress officers out emotionally to get the best out of them because if you're in a firefight in a shooting, you're not going to be feeling the same way that you were on the range where you're standing 10 feet from a target shooting paper. So it really opened my eyes to the need for the training that includes stress on these officers, among many other things that it opened my eyes to. But that, that I think, is the biggest one for me. Sure, because what good is it to possess a skill if we can't call it up under periods of ever-increasing? Right, and stress. and they always say that in a, in a stressful situation, you go back to your last piece of training. Yes. And if our training is just standing on a flat surface with no stress, shooting at paper, that might not be enough. And which portions of the program did you enjoy? The breath work, the, the tactical fitness and mobility, the resilience, process versus outcome? To, to start, I would say the human performance under pressure was, it's, I think it's like the foundation for everything. And that, like I said, was very eye-opening for me where it kind of, it showed me the, the difference in education and training and that the, the need to blend the two is, is important. Breathwork definitely is important. I already mentioned that we had a breath coach come in. Learning the what the diaphragm does when you're breathing and our breath coach gave us tips on how to breathe before the event, during the critical incident, after to get our heart rate back down. That was something, I obviously breathing is important. We, we all do it, but to do it effectively to stop yourself from going right of the curve, it, it was vitally important. Another one was process over outcome or versus outcome. I always think when when this came up, it was like crazy as far as in the SWAT world. We, I've been lucky that we've never had an officer injured, whether it be in, in a shooting or injured in another way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our process has been perfect. We may go through hundreds of high-risk search warrants or or do a bunch of barricades and we have positive outcomes, which we've always had. But that doesn't mean that our tactics or our intentions and our plans were, were perfect. And I think that's important where after-action reviews are vitally important. It's another thing I envy with the fire department is you can leave an incident, go back to the firehouse, have dinner together, talk about what it was you did 
whether it be good or bad. You have to be honest with yourself and others in that situation. A lot of times when we're done our jobs, we have a ride back and we go over the, the minor things, but we don't do real after action reviews. And it's something that I'm pushing to, to adjust. The problem that we have is a lot of our officers are patrol officers and there are eight different towns that are coming in. So a lot of them have to leave immediately when the job's done. So we don't have that luxury like the fire department does to where you can go back and you have the rest of your 24-hour shift to talk about the incident that you were in. It's important to talk about, and I think there needs to be a bigger push to do that. And the last one, we've talked about training. Uh, I've talked about at length the, how important that is to me. And the the class really showed different ways of training our, our people to really keep them center. During the class, I asked you how many days you train a week, and you gave the number. And I was my jaw just dropped when I heard it. But I guess in respects, I, sh I should. Like, you're in a profession that punishes mistakes or potential failure with jail time. Like, yep. It's incomprehensible to me in my profession to ever think like that. So you think about training, and this is for both of our communities. I'm sure that those that the amount of time, and I won't give the number, I'm sure that's a minatory, mandible minatory. Right? And same thing for us. We have to meet certain standards. For us, many of these standards were, were created decades ago. And yet you look at, as, as Jason and I would describe it, the, the ever-increasing span, scope, and complexity of responsibility. How is there not additional time allocated to both of these professions? We would think that this is one of the existential questions moving forward. You can't ask so much of you as a SWAT team member, for us as firefighters, for medics, without giving them all the training they need. Yeah, I think that really comes down to, to money and manpower. To increase all these things, it costs money. We need more people to be available to cover the shifts while we do this training. And we from far below can scream that we need more training, we need more training. The Police Training Commission, which governs training in New Jersey, is going to be governed by a politician. So there's there's only so much that they can do. And, and I'm not saying that they're not trying to do more because I'm sure they are. We've, we've had a lot of good training recently that's better equipping our, our people. But there's only so much money and manpower that's available to, to get this training done. And, and I agree that it, we need to do far more than we do, but we don't have the means yet to do that. I would look at a, a New York example. There was a piece in the Times last week where six or eight officers cost the city 90-something million dollars. In New York City, the number reaches extraordinary amounts. You think about, and also the cost like to a city, one bad incident could have catastrophic impacts. Like from our perspective, if people are not compelled to make the moral, to, to accept the moral argument, they should be compelled to accept it financially. Because if we don't train you to the fullest extent and something goes south and then that kicks off another catastrophic event, it's pinching pennies compared to what the city of New York, for example, pays out every year. Yeah, we, uh, we recently have introduced a defensive tactics mandatory training for our agency where it's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
And our detective sergeant, he's been tremendous with it. He's been doing martial arts for 15 years. He's a, I think he's a purple belt in jujitsu. And we've, we made it mandatory where we have to do it four times a year, every officer. And our, our PBA local, our union actually bought mats and holds a once a week training class for the, the union members where it's free for them to come. They can learn these things and jujitsu and new defensive tactics theories have shown a reduction in use of force complaints. And I think that's where most of our payouts are going to is people think we use too much force where a cost effective way for us to hopefully mitigate that a little bit is to adjust our training in that these use of forces can go few and far between because officers are are trained and more equipped to handle these people that are resisting arrest. Interesting. Another example of a very progressive department that you work in. Yeah, we're very lucky that, again, the, the chief allows us to do it and we have the people that are interested in it. And like I said, our detective sergeant, he just ran a half marathon without training for it. <laughs> he he did a jujitsu tournament a week after being with me in a training class all week, and he won the tournament. So he's just a badass, and, and we're very lucky to have him. Yeah. And he's very geared towards bettering our officers in that. We're lucky that all the things are coming together to where we can really push it forward. That's fantastic. I'm curious, uh, have you adjusted any of your lifestyle since wearing the whoop? I'm more cognizant of drinking for sure because yeah. any time that I – even one or two yep. beers, yep. it's I have a red uh, sleep score. I think I'm more cognizant of moving around. Recently, towards the end of the summer, I started walking at night. Having a three-year-old and a five-and-a-half-month-old, it's been difficult for me to get to the gym. So I have a squat rack in my basement, but there's times that I'll go down there and then a kid's awake crying at 5.30 in the morning. So I've been after I get all my chores done, I go and walk at night and I listen to an audio book. So not only is it physically helping me, and obviously the Whoop's tracking all this, but I get a chance to listen to an audio book, which is beneficial too. The Whoop's been great in that I can track my sleeping and I can track... I, I can track how much I'm moving around, but really I look at the, the heart rate stuff all the time when I'm uh, I'm excited to look at it after I leave here to, <laughs> to see how it was when we first started. But it's crazy the technology that it has and to be able to learn more about myself just based off of wearing this is is priceless. Yes, and you spoke about alcohol. College athletes who wear this hate it because coaches can see on the dashboard whether or not they're drinking <laughs> and just how profoundly impactful that is. Yeah. But from my perspective, uh, I completely changed the way I look at sleep. You know, I was one of those guys, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Well, the single most impactful change you can make is better sleep. Yeah, I agree. I actually just started wearing blue light blocker glasses at night. And I bought mouth tape and my nose, unfortunately, has been stuffed up so I can't really use it right now. But when my chief and I got into our positions, we actually changed the rotations of our shifts from two weeks to a month just because of when we were on patrol, 
we would get used to the night work shifts being up all night and then we're quickly changing to day work where we have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and then vice versa you're getting used to the day work shift and you're quickly switching to night work and i think the the monthly is is probably good for us and i've heard recently that a lot of our officers like the month they don't want to go to permanents because that was an option for us but we didn't want to force anybody to do it because night work is kind of you're free to do what whatever you want I mean, obviously, you have calls that you have to answer, but you can go out and stop cars if you want. You can check parks. You can park. I used to park in an apartment complex and just walk around. And I can't tell you how many people I just walked up on and they had no clue I was there. So night work allows you to do that. Day work, we have school checks, school crossings. We have walk-ins. We have to run to the court. And all these things are important, but that young fiery new officer doesn't want to do that so we couldn't go to permanent shifts because we we couldn't find enough people to work day work and we we're never going to force them to do that so we we switched it to monthly so they have a, a longer amount of time to get used to that shift and then unfortunately we have to switch them to the other one um, but uh, to to your point sleep is vital to recovery and being ready to go the next day and it's it's difficult for patrol officers to get a good night's sleep, but anything we can do to facilitate that, we're definitely going to look into it. That's excellent. And it's so fantastic that you realized we should probably increase the amount of time because it's less of a bang to the system. Right. Yeah. And and there's always how far can we go with it? Do we want to do six months of it? But I, I think the the stress that people get on day work waking up early and having to deal with far more than they do on night work would be a detriment to them so i think we're really in a good spot with the month now and hopefully other departments are are going to do that too but for us it's it's really worked out well terrific and to close david given what you've learned is there reason to be optimistic about the future of law enforcement definitely i uh I was listening to a podcast called Reducing Crime and somebody you're familiar with, Bill Bratton, was on it. And this was a quote. I don't think it was his, but he said it on there and that's what interests me in it. There's two things that cops hate, the way we've always done it and change. But I think the way that people are now is change is becoming more accepted. And I was looking at the police suicide numbers as compared to the officers killed in the line of duty. And they're comparative right now. They're both just under 100, which is horrible. I mean, any any of them is horrible. But last year, in 2022, we had over 200 police suicides. So we're far lower than, than we were at this time last year. And I think that kind of leads to the change that more people are accepting, where we're kind of breaking the stigma where it's okay to go talk to a psychiatrist or, or a police uh, psychiatrist. I was at a, a charity hockey game on Saturday, and it was for an officer that uh, took his own life. And one of the speakers, uh, she's a friend of mine, Sergeant Candace Gorman from Audubon Police Department. She was the officer's sergeant and was running at him when he took his own life in front of her. And it just shows like the resilience that she has, and she's open to talking about it. She talked at the hockey game. We've had resiliency trainings where she comes and talks about the day and, and the aftermath. 
And I think that is one of the things that is keeping me optimistic in the profession and that not only are we changing in that we're more resilient and hopefully the police suicides are going down, but our education and and training is evolving with these new young thinkers that are coming in. And there's a, over the past maybe like five or six years or even maybe far to 10 years, there's been a, a lot of new things coming out. Like street cop training is big. It started in New Jersey from a retired uh, New Jersey cop. And it's it's getting these officers excited to do the job. And they have, they're evolving in their training to where they have these trainings to, to make you better mentally. Not not so much how Leadership Under Fire is doing it, but more of like a health and wellness avenue. And people are accepting of that and they're, they see the importance in that. And I think it's people are better equipping themselves by educating themselves and, and going to these trainings to deal with the stressors that we deal with. And if we can get police suicides to zero, I mean, that's that's our goal. But that we're at half of what we were last year is definitely keeping me optimistic that people are are seeing the, the need to care for ourselves. Sure. And it's fantastic that you and your department are understanding that police officers are human and you are humanizing their narrative. Yeah, I mean, we we obviously have these rules we have to follow, but it it's good in that like we know how they're going to react from going through the leadership under fire class. And if they're reacting based off of how their heart is and going right to the curve, their intention was not to to do what they did. It was just the way that their body reacted to the situation. And that's not a reason for me to discipline them. That might be a reason for me to train them further yes, and yes. train them in something that they've never trained on. So it's the leadership under fire class really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And it really changed, I think, the trajectory of my career and that what I think is important is kind of evolving. That's absolutely terrific. And in closing, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. And it, the things that you and your department are doing are absolutely phenomenal. To, it, like I said in the beginning, it's an honor to be here with you. And uh, I love this podcast. And to be a guest on it is, is a dream. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.